Welcome to The Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. In the previous episodes, I described my first experience of a 10-day silent Vipassana meditation retreat and interviewed Tim, who has taken and taught more such courses than he can remember. In this episode, I speak with Drew Schaefer, a Zen Buddhist monk who I met at the Austin Zen Center. He first describes his life story, a tumultuous upbringing, evolving through stages of extreme self-experimentation, going to Caltech physics and reveling in uninhibited shenanigans, being engulfed by loneliness and meeting a mathematician who interested him in Buddhism. He then describes his formal Zen monastic career, starting in Paris, then at the Los Angeles and San Francisco centers at Green Gulch, then the intense and remote high desert Tassahara Center, the first Soto Zen monastery outside Asia. Let's start with the life story. Okay. Like, you know, roughly, like, where were you born? What was your upbringing like? Right. Let's, life trajectory. How yeah. did you eventually come into spiritual path slash Buddhism slash Zen Buddhism? That's a long story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I was born in uh, San Antonio. Um, my, my dad... Uh, so... so Probably the best place to start is a couple years before I was born, though. So my 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 dad and mom got married in 1990, um, and my dad is from New York. He's he he was raised as kind of like a very normal, like liberal, secular Jew, mm. and uh, m- my mom uh, grew up in Houston, and she had like no no really religious background at all, mm-hmm. but from like Christian kind of people originally mm-hmm. and um so um yeah they they met in uh they started dating in san antonio and got married in 1990 and my dad so he was not religious at all at that point he um yeah he he, he would eat like bacon your uh, parents got married in 1990 yeah wait how old are you 1990 uh yeah Am I miss? Uh, I'm 26. You're 26. Uh huh. So I was born in 1996. Ah, okay. okay uh huh. Okay. Right. Oh, all right. Well, I for some reason thought that you were older. I was born oh. in 1989. Oh. A year before your parents got married. Oh. Uh-huh. That's why I was like, Ooh, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm 26. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so my dad basically had not really been practicing Judaism at all mm-hmm. and then uh, yeah was not religious and my mom but but he did ask when they were getting married for my mom to convert to Judaism mm-hmm. in uh, Judaism there's a very large emphasis on uh, like kind of on descent and the I'm not sure if you know this but uh, you're considered Jewish if your mother is yeah. Jewish so that was important for him and my mom was just kind of a very agreeable woman in general and said that she she would do it mm. though it was very clear that she didn't believe in it 
So mm-hmm. she she went to uh, like kind of Torah lessons and just did all of the stuff to learn about Judaism as someone who's converting, and um, and. She, she went to the Reformed synagogue and they asked her why she wanted to convert and she said, I don't believe it at all. I just want to mm-hmm. my, uh, my husband, my fiancé just wants me to convert. And they said, no, like we won't let you convert mm-hmm. like that. Then she went to a conservative synagogue mm-hmm. and she said the exact same thing and they let her convert. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So she converted to Judaism though, again, both she and my dad were at that point totally irreligious and not yeah just basically kind of regular uh american like big city professionals mm-hmm. um and um so when my sister was born though in 1992 um so she was born before me for th- three and a half years before me um she, my mom uh was what when she during childbirth she was bleeding so much that she nearly died and apparently um my my dad uh was so desperate that he actually prayed to god and Mm. and asked for um for him to save my mom and said that he would start following the laws of judaism uh if he if my mom survived and um my mom did survive, fortunately, and gradually over the next couple of years, he started becoming more religious. He started, um, like, I mean, f- first it was just like, okay, we're going to synagogue on Saturday morning now. And then, like, basically over the next decade of life, uh, of his life, so, so, and then I was born in 1996, uh, um, and that whole time like before and after my birth there was just this ramp up of religiosity like first he was just going to synagogue then he was like i think he was the president of one of the synagogues a couple of years after that um yeah he's like kind of a like well-respected surgeon in san antonio so it's like yeah so they made him like president and uh, um I, I remember like gradually uh um, what, what, when I was young, I just have these memories of him, uh, like gradually imposing one new rule after another. Like I, I remember one thing was that, mm. um, like w- one moment, all of a sudden the pop tarts in my house disappeared. It was like, <laughs> those are not allowed anymore because they're not kosher. Okay. And it was like, I, now I can't use electricity on Saturdays and mm. Like this was, these are like my very, some of my earliest memories, like three, four, five years old, just this gradual kind of uh, descent upon my life of these, all of these rules. <laughs> and you didn't understand because you were a child. To you, it was just like well, rules. These are just rules. Yeah, I, I did not want mm. them at all. I, mm. I did not want uh, any of these restrictions on my life to happen. Yeah. Um, but it was just kind of my, yeah, from my dad's. Uh, my my dad's in position, mm-hmm. and um, my mom though remained as uninterested in religion as she had always been. Even though mm-hmm. your dad had allegedly pr- 
prayed for mm-hmm. her to not die and mm-hmm. she had survived yeah and it kind of converted your dad yeah, because yeah. he must have been really convinced uh-huh. but your mom was like ah, whatever yes that's okay. correct <laughs> no my mom was not interested in god okay at all the yeah. whole time so she didn't quite believe i guess that it was your dad's uh, prayer that had that effect or even if it had she was kind of ambivalent about it that's correct yeah i don't think my mom ever put any importance mm-hmm. on that um okay. on that prayer mm-hmm. um and so, so yeah so gradually my mom my, so, so my dad instead of going to the conservative synagogue he thought that they weren't strict enough so that he, he started going to the orthodox synagogue and like growing a beard and everything. Mm. And my mom just all of a sudden found herself uh, married to an Orthodox Jew, which is very strange transformation. Yeah, yeah so, so it's, it's like in some ways opposite to the person that she had like married in the first place. Right, right, right. Yeah, my, my dad, when he was younger, he talks about how, like when he was a teenager, so, so he grew up in New York and it would be a thing for a, like some some of these more evangelical Jewish sects to to try and like like ask people on the street like oh are you Jewish like come say a prayer with us like blah blah, blah. and my dad would like avoid these people mm-hmm. specifically avoid them mm-hmm. and then so yeah he all of a sudden my mom uh, was married to an Orthodox Jew and um, uh, so. Um, yeah, so she, she started uh, divorce proceedings when I was six or seven. Whoa. And because my dad wanted me to, me and my sister to start going to a religious school. And my mom did not want that to happen. And she, yeah, she just didn't want to have the lifestyle of a, the wife of a Hasidic Jew. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so she, um, yeah, she, she divorced him when I was seven I think uh, and from that point on I had a split custody childhood of uh, so my mom again kind of being in this instance maybe even like too agreeable I think um, she she just kind of said like oh we can do it 50-50 um, so yeah, it's kind of ironic that uh-huh. the thing that kind of triggered your dad to start becoming more religiously Jew- Jewish was mm-hmm. because of how deeply he wanted his wife to like be alive mm-hmm. and survive. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, this religiosity created this gulf. Right. Man, how and how? Uh-huh. It's just like a kind of weird like paradox there uh-huh. that how then does the religiosity keep its momentum mm-hmm. against the thing which gave birth to it in the first place yeah yeah, yeah. I think he, he just started to become more concerned with the set of rules than with yeah. his relationship with his wife or kids and uh, yeah so he was ultimately fine um i mean he chose to stay religious rather than um keep things going with my mom Mm. um and so 
I, yeah, I had a split custody childhood in which um, 50% of the time I was at my mom's house, 50% at my dad's house. It was actually, they actually did it so every other day I, I switched houses. Like, um, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, for example, Monday would be my dad's day. He would pick me up from school. Tuesday, my mom's day. Wednesday, my dad's day. And yeah, I never realized until I was an adult how weird that was, yeah, how yeah. probably unsettling. Yeah. Um, it's like you're in a room and someone is constantly flip, flicking the light on and off, uh-huh. on and off. Uh-huh. Like you adjust uh-huh. and then it turns off. Okay, uh-huh. night uh-huh. vision, whoa, day vision, whoa, right. night vision. Exactly, because yeah. those two households were so different. It was like yeah. one of the households was just basically a, a like pretty standard American household and then the other one was a... Hasidic Jewish fundamentalist household in which like my, and my dad was pretty emotionally abusive and mm. he would um, yeah he, he would like basically force force me to pray and uh, like shame me if I didn't want to and he, he would also kind of have my sister spy on me like at my mom's house he would ask in front of both of us like oh so Jamie like was Drew eating kosher when he was at his mom's house? Was Drew mm-hmm. like saying his prayers at his mom's house? And um, so, yeah, I, I just had very, yeah, it, it was, I, I honestly, like one of the deepest feelings that I have that is still not totally, um, is still not totally kind of resolved is the feeling that I'm like constantly lying or something because like literally my entire life when I was a kid was just hiding who I was yeah. because I was afraid of my father. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I have this, I, I remember I, I would just be like, par- when I was at my mom's house, I would just be paranoid that somehow my dad was going to show up and like see the things I was doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah. And he was also like occasionally physically violent. And like I, I was honestly, I just spent a lot of my childhood just kind of in terror of my my dad mm. and my sister, who he recruited in the fucking secret police. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this kind of shaped for you a lot of your like default mental neuroses. orientation <laughs> of the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It it yeah. definitely has. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, I, that, that was just this mm. feeling, just, I, I mean, I was objectively lying. Like, mm-hmm. I, I can say that looking back, like, mm-hmm. that was the protective mechanism I used. Like, I was lying. Like, my, my, it just, it just feels like, it just, in this almost, like, almost like physical way, like, this sense that I'm being dishonest and lying has kind of been with me my whole life. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah I mean you also got repeatedly shamed for it right 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 exactly and uh, yeah and then uh, so so that was so so in other terms so that was like my family situation Um, I I went to a like small private school Mm -hmm. Um, um, yeah and well, I, I don't really have much to say about that at this moment. But 
So one of the first moments I also view as kind of pivotal as to kind of the start of my spiritual consciousness. So shortly after my, my, my parents got divorced, maybe within the next year or something, um, my stepdad came into my life. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, so he, he had known my mom since elementary school. They, they'd known each other for like 40 years and went to prom together even. Oh, okay. So they had a long relationship. Mm-hmm. And he, um, so he, he had somewhat of a philosophical bent and was, he's a um, computer scientist. Like he, he had worked at NASA mm. um, as well. He like very interested in kind of math and philosophy, computer science. Um, a lot of people, this may be relevant later on, so, so I might mention it now. So, like, a lot of people in my family have, like, scientific careers. Like, my, uh, yeah, my, my grandpa, my, my grandpa moved his, the family of my mom to Houston because they were working at NASA. Like, he helped work on the prototypes of the spacesuit um, mm-hmm. that was used in the Gemini and Apollo missions. Um, and my, yeah, step-grandpa was in electrical engineer with NASA and my stepdad was a um, computer scientist with NASA. So yeah, just very strong, uh, hard science oriented background. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, my stepdad, Jack, was kind of um, of more curious side, like not just going for like the applications, more interested in sort of philosophical side of these things. Mm -hmm. And um, he he very strongly encouraged me. Um, So so, so when I was 12, so so I I was totally open with my mom and Jack that I did not want to keep practicing Judaism. I didn't want to keep pretending like I wanted to. Like I just wanted to be done with it and like not have it part of my life. And um, so... He, uh, yeah, I, he, he was encouraging me to be honest about these thoughts and feelings. Um, because he, he himself was, even though his, he grew up in an area like the suburbs of Houston that were with a lot of engineers and scientifically oriented people, his, pers- his own family was religious and he had had to like when he was he was raised christian and when he was a teenager he had also felt like pressured to try um to to conform to to those christian standards and and but he refused confirmation Hmm. uh and so uh when, when i was 10 11 12 um he, he was talking to me about this, t- talking to me about this and encouraging me to kind of take a stand in that same way. And an opportunity came up when I was 12 years old because of, uh, are you familiar with the bar, what bar mitzvah is? Yeah, it's like some kind of a coming of age. Right, somewhere. right, right. Yeah. So it's like at age 13 for boys, 12 for girls, you have a ceremony in which you are formally inducted into the Jewish community mm-hmm. like as an, with the responsibilities of an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
So, and that entails like literally getting up in front of hundreds of people mm. and declaring that you would like to be part of the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. And which was something that I really did not want to do, obviously. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> he, um, so, so that, that, was, that event was coming up. And also my dad uh, told me, this okay well that detail might be a little too far afield but mm -hmm. yeah so i had this big event in which i would be perpetuating this lie in a kind of deeper more public more profound way than i had been doing up till then mm -hmm. um so i um yeah and it was honestly the most one of the most difficult things i've done in my life uh, I actually had to have my mom tell him first. So she told my dad that I did not want to have a bar mitzvah. I had her tell him because I was afraid if I were alone, I, he would literally beat me up or something. Mm. Um, and so she told him first when those, they two were alone. And then, uh, and then of course, the next time I w went to his house, like we had a conversation in which he basically, he, he literally told me like, I've never been so disappointed in my life. Uh, um, yeah, and basically he still tried to force me to do all the prayers and everything, but I refused to um, still, yeah, I, I was not going to have a bar mitzvah. I was clear about that. And that was kind of like the first big taste of freedom I've had in my life. Um, it was like the first big act of rebellion. Yes. Yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah. And um, yeah. That that I feel like that was kind of a pivotal moment in me. Um, kind of. Even though it was very 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 hard, mm -hmm. just trying to absolutely, like, not lie about yeah. who I am. Um, yeah, and uh, which is a spiritual practice I'm continuing to this day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so after that, uh, I, um, I, I, I barely spoke to my dad for the next 10 years. I started living with my mom full time and um, I, I, as a teenager, I started to get very interested in the hard sciences, um, mm -hmm. mainly due to the influence of my stepdad, mm -hmm. Jack. And uh, yeah, I, I was raised in the belief that kind of the, again, coming from this background of so many uh, scientists like that, um, mm -hmm. I, is, are we doing yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to check the levels once. Yeah, it's cool. Good. It's good. Good, good, good. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah um, I, I started to get very interested in hard sciences and uh, like I started reading um, like rationalist philosophers like Bertrand Russell mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I started coding, started um, reading the Feynman lectures, Th yeah this was what I was up to as a teenager and became very very kind of fundamentalist about the sciences like thought that literature and spirituality were complete bullshit 
Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a similar. <laughs> I definitely had a similar face. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was a militant atheist. Uh-huh. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, same. I yeah, I hated religion. Mm-hmm. Um I um yeah, I, I thought that basically if anything couldn't be proved from axioms or or um or uh proven empirically, like mm-hmm. through the scientific method, then it was not valid as part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, I, I, I even went so far as to try to apply these ideas to human affairs and like, kind of, axiomatize my life, and I, kind of, became very neurotic. Mm-hmm. I um, started, uh, I, I kept a schedule of what I was doing with my time in fifteen minute blocks. Mm-hmm. Like I would check off like I spent these fifteen minutes, like reading this, these fifteen minutes, like talking to friends or whatever just trying to somehow like basically treat myself like a machine and Mm -hmm. try to optimize my life Mm -hmm. (laughs) which now seems like incredible folly Mm -hmm. but uh that's what i was doing as a 15 year old Mm um and um yeah i i also uh i i honestly also grew pretty depressed because i I, um, so, so in the quest for kind of axioms about how to live my life, I, I boiled them down to just a, a few and basically the, the, the main one or kind of the most motivating one being like, I am not more important than other people. Um, like all, all human lives are kind of equally valid important um and uh i'm do you, is there any chance you know the philosopher peter singer who i've heard of his name right yeah. right right he, he wrote he's most famous for the book animal liberation in the 70s okay and he, he also wrote another um essay called uh famine affluence and morality during the 70s when there was a large uh famine in bangladesh mm-hmm. and he um he basically wrote, like, drawing kind of very rationally and straightforwardly from that same principle of the equality of human life that, like, given, in, in if you're a Westerner, you, you have so little, um, hmm. you, you have so much disposable income that could be, like, donated to other, to save people in these poor countries like if you actually instead of buying a coffee donated five dollars of um of your money to um like i don't know doctors without borders or like oxfam or someone like that mm-hmm. um like they could actually legitimately save people's lives vaccinate people mm-hmm. or um give people like vitamins or, or help provide clean drinking water so um and so basically his conclusion was that if you are not giving them that money then you're basically it's basically rationally equivalent to killing them because (laughs) because uh 
Yeah, your, your action of not giving them that money is making a difference between someone living and dying, so therefore that's the same as killing them. Mm-hmm. And I was I believed that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, just that's had a lot of guilt. And uh, yeah, just these... I, I was just engaging in all of these forms of... of uh, so, so all of the ways in which I was engaging with these questions of human ethics were basically from the point of view of... of treating myself like a machine without feelings mm-hmm. and uh yeah so uh, yeah I, I i was very interested in philosophy and but found found that all i was doing was making me depressed mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I did have that that mind that was searching for for answers as a teenager and physics in these sorts of very rational philosophers and they were all just making me depressed mm-hmm. and, and um, so I uh, w- when I was around 17 I s- started to um, like with the influence of some friends s- kind of start a little bit more like lifestyle experimentation like um, just, just being goofy and weird like putting my hair t- tying my hair and letting people tie my hair in braids or uh, wearing fingernail polish mm-hmm. um it was actually the same color you have on now oh. it was like sky blue <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah. uh yeah i would i would wear like pink and stuff um and um i i just felt of so, so one of the kind of more positive sides of that rationalistic worldview i had was um I think that it was supportive of some of my experimentation, like mm-hmm. just kind of viewing the arbitrariness of human culture helped me to, that encouraged me to feel comfortable stepping beyond those boundaries a lot. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that was a genuine source of growth or that it supported along with the other negative patterns. Um, and so that kind of started in high school and then in, so, so, I uh, went to Caltech as a undergraduate when I was 18 mm-hmm. and <clears throat> my interest in physics um, so, so I, I had come to physics thinking like okay this is the most important most fundamental thing that a human can do with their mind and uh, when I actually got to college though these sorts of lifestyle experimentation started to seem grow in importance relative to the academics. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I was very lucky because Caltech, the, the residential system is divided into eight houses that you stay with all four years. And they have like very distinct personalities and are very, um, very cohesive. So you're in there with, uh, as a freshman, you're in there with sophomores, juniors, and seniors who are, who are all kind of working together to create this kind of insular house, house culture, which kind of allows it to be more intense in that way. And so the, the house I was part of was called Ricketts. And we, um, it, it, it was kind of like the, like anarchists, like loud music, just like pe- people would 
like just smash beer bottles against the walls. Uh, like we, it was there was a, it was a Spanish style building, and there was a big brick courtyard in the in the middle, and people would do things like, like soak tennis balls in gasoline while drunk, and just like, yeah, just kind of hit hit them around with tennis rackets, and they'd like leave puddles of flame when they bounced, and um, we also did. <laughs> Uh, some, some other things like, um, this one skit for the, for the new students week in the beginning of the, the year there, we did this skit called mama bird, baby bird, where, um, a bunch of, uh, we build a human sized nest with like newspaper and then we would, uh, so, so, so three people would be the baby birds. They would slather their bodies in like some sort of syrup, like get feathers, cover themselves in feathers. And they just hide in the nest while everyone else was eating dinner. And then in the middle of dinner, um, the, the mama bird would come in and the, the baby birds, the, again, like covered it in feathers. And the, the baby birds would like jump out of the nest. And whatever was for dinner that night, the mama bird would uh, like chew it up and spit it in each of our mouths. Oh my <laughs> and, god! Right, right. So we'd just be there, like, gah, 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 ah, ah. <laughs> and then she, uh, whoever it was would come over and like, and like, chew up some pasta and then spit it into your Why? mouth. Because I don't know, just joy. <laughs> oh my <God>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, that really strongly resonated with me. Like that. Um, yeah. Just I, I feel like p- part of me, like the, the degree, I, I felt. S- I felt so strongly so much in my life that I've been lying and then mm-hmm. I felt like I needed kind of an equally strong antidote like yeah, yeah. like I am not gonna hide anything like we are going to yeah my friends and I we're gonna get naked and sing pirate songs yeah, like yeah. I don't even know yeah. like we're going to um, like we, we would like we, we would have like nudist parties where we would uh, um, you, you know uh, so, so before winter break we would play uh, the christmas song the messiah by george handel mm-hmm. like and so we'd just all be naked mm-hmm. like very drunk and just singing like hallelujah hallelujah <laughs> yeah. yeah just all of these joyful just mm-hmm. crazy things and like another one um that we did my friend willis and i we um we did this so there were our ricketts hosted open mic nights in which that was like the focus mm-hmm. of a lot of these weird events. Mm-hmm. And um, w- one time we did this thing called the circumnavigation of Drew in which he, he sat on my, my, my friend Willis sat on my shoulders and then me just standing there, he would climb like around my body through my legs and totally <laughs> circumnavigate me. While just like still standing. Exactly. Just me just standing still and he just goes like whoop, <laughs> under the legs. Like you can see the audience sees like, oh, his like head sticks out from under my balls. And <laughs> it, like it's a laugh. Yeah, yeah. It was just yeah. this very, uh, a lot of focus. That's, that's actually gymnastically very impressive. Too. It is. Yeah. It is. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a little sugar on the bottom of my drink, and I'm trying to <laughs> dissolve it so I can drink it up. There we go. So yeah, I uh, yeah, it honestly felt to me like that was kind of a, honestly a spiritual path. It was but kind of like a liberation experiment. It, from yeah, 
It was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I still to this day like I feel totally fine being naked in yeah. front of whoever. Yeah. Um, yeah. It. Um, yeah. It was just a way to, like. It, it, we were just very joyful and happy-go-lucky about it. Like we were, we were just happy to include people, and uh, like pe- people loved it, 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 especially in that setting of the house culture where, like you, you know each other, and everyone just just loved it, loved having all of these weird, goofy things happening throughout throughout mm-hmm. our community, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, it was just a really positive way to uh, make connections, and uh, yeah, I uh, I kind of viewed that as at that point. So, so for college, that was like my main spiritual path. Like I'm just going to go beyond the boundaries, like every boundary. Like as long as I'm not hurting another person, like mm-hmm. there's no reason why I should not feel comfortable doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was my um, line of thought, which I still somewhat sympathize with. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I uh, so we um, so, so me and a couple of my friends were kind of like the core of this group of people who were pushing the boundaries in those we- in that those particular ways. And then around junior year, um, they started to. Um, I was still totally into it. Like this is the most important thing in my life. Uh, and what? So the two other friends who were doing it with me, uh, Eric and Willis. They, Eric, kind of got a pretty serious girlfriend. <laughs> so uh, he he kind of became a lot less available for these sorts of things. And then um, my friend Willis was started to get a lot more interested in school and getting into making sure you could get into a good grad school and whatever mm-hmm. and ne- both of which yeah neither of those things applied to me mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um I, I i honestly felt kind of abandoned and uh like we we were just very close and just so many different like weird things like have just yeah, n- naked dance parties, like just sh- showing up, at, uh, like in our uh, underwear, like anywhere across campus. Like we just do all these things together, like like we just knew that we had each other to do it with, so mm-hmm. that and we were okay because of that. And uh, and then so at, around junior year, um, they, they started withdrawing in their own ways from from these sorts of activities, and. I, I, at a certain point, started getting very bitter. Like, mm-hmm. like they don't see how important this is. Mm-hmm. Like, this is like a, the true spiritual path of mm-hmm. like liberating ourselves mm-hmm. from the boundaries of our ego. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they don't understand how important it is. And I'm gonna keep going. And no one, I don't care if anyone understands it or not. Like, I'm just gonna keep being me. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, and like people, part part of it is like people did give me recognition for doing these sorts of things. Like, I had people tell me, like, like Drew, like you are a legend. Like, mm-hmm. I literally had someone tell me once, like you are, a, like man, like you are a god. Like, uh, like people uh, were very. It, it was like a 
kind of a big deal. I was like a minor celebrity mm-hmm. almost. Um, I, yeah, people I, I had never met before would tell me about like how crazy I was mm-hmm. and like how, <laughs> how amazing it was. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I started to get honestly a very big head about it mm-hmm. and started to feel very arrogant that, um, yeah, I was just more liberated than other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and around the time that um, they, that those two friends kind of fell away, I also had a very brief and intense, like kind of infatuation with a girl um, who was also very, very, who, who, when I first met her, she, it felt like she was like the only one who could match my energy. She was like just fiery, like, um, like just loud, physically intense, mm-hmm. like within actual minutes of meeting each other, we, um, sorry, sorry, mosquito. I just killed something. Uh, within actual minutes of meeting each other, we were like kind of wrestling each other almost. Like she, 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 she was literally, I think, uh, like a gold medal and some form of karate or something. N- not like Olympics, but like the national thing. Um, like yeah, it was just this very. I, I just felt like I had this very intense energy that no one could match, and then she was kind of the first person in my life it seemed who who could match that and um yeah i i i became like I'll, in the space of literally one week i became obsessed with her yeah and then what there came a point though when um i i asked her out on a date and she um, yeah, I, I kind of made us a picnic and she just kind of unleashed how much negativity just was like exploding from her insides. Like she was just such towards a, you in particular or um, in general, in general, but also including towards me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like she, she had all of that energy that she had was kind of, um, just like rotting inside of her just stale mm. just frustration and rage just built up to an enormous degree and that's kind of what was propelling her to be so frantically energetic yeah. so it seemed like you had kind of perceived the intensity but had yet you had like called it too soon you hadn't really seen oh what is the nature of this intensity where is it coming from exactly exactly and yeah. uh yeah I, I was just shocked to see how much just kind of built up hatred she had inside of her and um, and so so yeah that that didn't work out and like all of these different things combined just um, yeah the the amount of praise I got from other people and the way that these other people who I thought could um, could be part of my journey they kind of disappointed me like quote unquote they like were not there to follow me down whatever Mm -hmm. path I thought I was going to follow like I just became very bitter Mm -hmm. like like I I stopped really participating in the activities of my house Mm -hmm. Um, like I just started uh, yeah I I like just 
like f feelings of loneliness that had only like occasionally reared themselves up before then just kind of totally mm. were my entire life mm -hmm. at that point mm -hmm. um yeah just just uh just insane loneliness mm -hmm. and um that's the point in my life in which I met the first person who was seriously interested in Buddhism, mm -hmm. who was um, slightly older than, maybe two years older than me. Mm -hmm. His name was uh, Shivel. Mm -hmm. he, um, he, he was a math major and was also, so, so he was interested in meditation and also literature and, um, and kind of art films. And I started to be very interested in that path. And... I, so I started meditating with him, and um, I also started reading a lot more like art and liter a lot more, a lot more literature and viewing art films together. We had a a film club in which we watched movies by like Andrei Tarkovsky and Ingmar Bergman and like these like ultra philosophical European art films. And honestly, I I was just very impressed by his sincerity, how mature he was, how he was just very, very smart and um, and also kind of skeptical of my like rash claims and he was very good at analyzing art and uh, I feel like before I had been able, I had watched art and I just wouldn't know what how to say or respond. So was it like this was a person who uh -huh. not for the first time challenged your views mm -hmm. but deeply enough that you, you were like, oh yeah. This guy, I have to take this guy's critique, critique serious. Yes. I can't yeah, just yeah. Right. brush it off like, oh, you guys just can't match my right, right, you know, right, right. whatever. Right. This guy, actually, I need to think about what he's saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he was kind of one of the few people in my life that I uh, kind of thought like, hey, maybe this guy knows something I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he may have been the only person. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he, he was, like I said, he put his energy into... Uh, Buddhism and artistic pursuits which was both almost unheard of at Caltech um, and um, so um, yeah I, I I started reading the first Zen book I read was The Way of Zen by Alan Watts and somehow the way Alan Watts was able to put it um, just kind of connecting it with various things, various Western philosophical ideas, as well as, for example, like Gödel's incompleteness theorem, like that was kind of the perfect bridge for someone in my mm -hmm. uh, worldview, kind of my scientific rationalist worldview. To mm -hmm. was Alan Watts also originally Jewish? Uh, Do you know? I I don't I I have not heard that, and Watts does not seem like a Jewish name to me. Yeah, that's true. The reason I ask is that many of this kind of Western, more like rationalist slash secular people who brought different flavors of Buddhism to the West mm -hmm. were like originally Jewish. And like okay. there's this word for them called like Jubus. Mm -hmm. And right. uh, my foray into spirituality actually also happened through... One person in particular, he was Sam Harris. Okay. I read uh -huh. one of his books. Yeah. Uh, and then I learned a little bit more about this Jubu people. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of Jewish people seem to find resonance with Buddhism. Mm. 
and a lot of them are the ones who kind of popularized it in the West. <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, so so you so you read Alan Watts, right? And yeah, some somehow it just felt like Zen, the the simplicity of Zen, mm. and also um, just the total acceptance, like the idea that mm. like you are already Buddha, like you don't need to do anything mm. to imp- to change to already be worthy of like total dignity and respect like mm. that was just total yes like mm. i i wanted to immediately be a zen buddhist and so in junior year i started practicing zen so 2017 i've been practicing zen for five years at this point mm. and um i also started to decide that after i um i I've had very negative experiences doing uh, research internships in physics. I was literally in a one time in the basement, one time in a sub sub basement, uh, just doing really tedious things with like debugging electronics, and it drove me crazy. And um, so I already decided I was not going to go to grad school. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had decided that I was going to. Uh, yeah, junior year, I decided, like, okay, again, that same, it, it was just clear, like, this is the most important thing I can be doing with my life, mm-hmm. is Zen Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So, um, I decided that after I graduated, I would go to a monastery. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I laugh is that uh-huh. uh, at the time that I first went to a 10-day silent Vipassana retreat, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I had, you know, it was this phase where I had kind of gotten into spirituality and I had learned how to meditate and through meditation I was basically channeling my curiosity Mm -hmm. towards my internal world. Yeah, This whole new world was starting to blossom. Uh I was like, whoa, Uh I've been carrying around my mind for my entire life. Uh I didn't have any idea about these things. It is amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's nothing more interesting, fulfilling, or deep Uh that I can imagine doing with my life. Uh So fuck everything. Well, not fuck everything, but after I get my PhD, I'm going to spend at least a year as a Buddhist monk in a mosque. Uh-huh. That's what I thought. Uh-huh. And when I went to the 10 day silent meditation retreat, I was thinking that this is going to gear me towards that life. I'm just going to get a deeper uh-huh. sense of what it's going to be. And after the 10 day silent retreat, I was like, nope, mm. I cannot be a monk. Why not? Um, because I realized I'm too restless and I'm too curious about things that are outside mm. of my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that retreat also established for me the the importance of a regular practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that I was like, well, this is like pretty important. But I also don't want to be doing this full time because there are like genuinely a lot of other things right, that right, right. I'm just like really interested to learn, know about the world. I actually like doing science and I like mm-hmm. doing all this stuff. But yeah, the, the the flavor of this, the way that you're talking about, it is like, oh yeah, I'm just yeah, I'm gonna yeah. Have it, I'm gonna go and do this, you know. Uh, that intensity was with me as oh, well. Oh great, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so so um, as as a junior, I decided that that's what I was going to do once mm-hmm. I graduated, and uh, I so i i studied abroad in france after that started going to a zen center there in paris which was actually my first formal zen experience mm-hmm. and then kept going to ones in los angeles in the la area mm-hmm. and yeah it was it just felt like doing academics was just kind of uh basically just uh 
do one last thing to please my parents, like actually graduate mm-hmm. before I <laughs> I go off and be a Buddhist monk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, uh, is is this getting into the next topic at this point? Yeah, so this yeah, is like start of my Buddhist career. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So I just continue along yeah, the story. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I. At this point in time, uh, so so my senior year of college, um, uh, I had found the San Francisco Zen Center, mm-hmm. which is um, in in the lineage of Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Um, they they have three separate temples. One is the city center, in in San Francisco proper. Another is Green Gulch, which is like 10 miles north of San Francisco in Marin County and that's kind of like a more rural setting they have a, a farm and it's like right on the beach and then the third one is Tassajara mm. which is uh, deep in the wilderness of uh, yeah d- deep in the wilderness near uh, Big Sur mm-hmm. basically and um, I, I, I was looking up uh, residential Zen opportunities and I found Green Gulch, mm. um, Green Gulch as part of the San Francisco Zen Center, and um, so that's where I went uh, after graduating, um, and uh, or, or actually, so, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so at that point, um, huh? I, I've actually I've never told the story from this point on. I I've mm-hmm. told the story of how I got to the monastery. I've never like. Told the story of my life in the monastery. I feel like that's so huge. <laughs> like it's hard for me to know yeah. how to thread it. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But let's, in the interest of getting to the next stuff, yes. let's like you know have like good. a condensed. Right. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, at Green Gulch, I I did a lot of work. Uh, yeah, I, I immediately brought that in intensity um, to uh, my life at Green Gulch. Like, I, mm-hmm. I was, I think the only person who did not take days off at Green Gulch, you, um, so six days a, a week, there's a, um, or, or, so, so you're supposed to, you, you only get, you're only allowed to miss the morning meditation that the whole community does one, one, once mm-hmm. a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so the wake up bell is at 4:25, and meditation starts at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. And like I, I, I never missed it. I never let mm-hmm. myself miss it. I was just like, I'm here to meditate. There's nothing else I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I worked on the farm. I worked in the kitchen, and I heard that there was this other place, like Green Gulch. I, I didn't realize this, but Green Gulch was not like the top kind of the most intense temple um tasahara which was the other one like like that place i started hearing stories about how how remote it was how how um yeah it's it's totally isolated you're Mm -hmm. just you you the (laughs) the wake-up bell is at 345 instead of 425 (laughs) and uh like there's just no heat there's no air conditioning it's Mm -hmm. It gets like twenty degrees in the <laughs> mm-hmm. in the winter. You mm-hmm. um, you 
uh, there's no air conditioning and since it's mm. like in the high desert climate so it's like 100 degrees in the in the summer like 20 degrees in the in the winter and they and it's just total silence everyone wears black robes mm. um, and green gold what I is, the, is there a significance of black robes? Um, that's just the... So at Green Gulch, you're, you're allowed to wear like any dark colors. Hmm. But uh, at Tassajara, like every single person it's there is wearing mon- monastic robes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just like... It's the... I, I heard that it's the first Soto Zen yeah. monastery founded in the United States. Right. First outside of Japan. First outside of Asia is what I read. Oh, uh uh-huh. So, yeah, it does seem to be like the OG. Yes. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I just heard that there was this kind of place in which the practice would be even more rigorous. Mm -hmm. And so I went there. And honestly, it's hard for me to even tell the story. Like, Mm -hmm. there's so many different storylines different friends that I made it's I feel like it might be best just to stick with the factual things like mm-hmm. I went to Tassahara stayed there for two um, I stayed there for for, for 15 months mm-hmm. and then I fell in love with a, a British woman who was there mm-hmm. and followed her to the UK mm-hmm. I that was during COVID mm-hmm. um, and we uh yeah, that's I could literally talk about that for hours. Yeah, yeah. So I see. Maybe and was it was it required for you guys to be silent at that monastery? So um, there's one w- one week every month mm-hmm. is a is a, a um, is a session, which is like a meditation retreat where that's all you do all day and you're mm-hmm. silent the entire day. But mm-hmm. the regular days, it's like you're silent from dinner until lunch the next day okay so um during you can socialize like between lunch and dinner mm. and it's yeah still a lot of silence though okay okay cool yeah so and then I, also you get one day off every yeah. five days in which you can talk i see Unlimited so i think months. this is like a good sort of like ending point to the you know life story and yeah. career in buddhism yeah thanks for joining us today in the room of lives In the next episode, Drew and I talk about Zen Buddhism and how the path relates to many aspects of our life, emotions, habits, and sexuality.